0: So, this episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links, and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I've become so powerful, I've taken over hosting duties all by myself. In this episode, number 333, as we talk about high-level play in 5th edition D&D. Joining us for this episode is a wonderful band of epic heroes... First up is, I believe, the second-time guest, known to many as Alpha Stream and designer, author, and uh, to a large number of RPG books and articles and blogs and, and everywhere else. If you uh, are paying much attention to who's doing stuff in D&D, you've probably heard of Teos Abadia. Welcome, sir.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, finally with you here as well. Thanks yeah. for having me on.
0: Yeah, we got you on, I managed to get you on an episode earlier, uh, maybe last month, uh, and then it turned out I was like traveling and couldn't actually be there for the episode. Uh, so you, got, you were all recorded without me. So it's nice to have you here and to, to meet you face to face, so to speak. Uh, yeah. I guess meet you. We, we've met before. I've actually uh, hung out with you right. at some parties at Gen Con and stuff, but yeah. right on. Uh, Also joining us is the monstrous ecologist from the show on the Tome Show uh, feed of the same name, your friend and mine, Jeremiah McCoy. Welcome back, sir.
2: Greetings and salutations.
0: Uh, And then lastly, but not leastly, is a newcomer to the show uh, from 2C Gaming, if I get the name right, coming to the rescue when I tweeted at the last minute that we had an opening for a recording (laughs) in 20 minutes, and he has relevant experience, so welcome, Ryan Service.
3: Hello. It's great to be here. I love talking about this particular subject.
0: Well, we love having people that have experience with this to talk about this particular subject, so... Excellent. Fantastic. So, um, let's go ahead and jump on into it. In every edition of D&D, it seems like there comes a point where people start talking about high-level play, uh, and how to do it and why people aren't doing it and, and, uh, what have you. Um, and in many ways, this discussion is universal. In other ways, we can get into specifics to, to this edition, fifth edition of D&D, um, this is sort of our chance to, to dive into that here, right? And to have our say sort of in that conversation of what's going on with high-level play for 5th edition D&D. Uh, because apparently, uh, if Twitter is any indicator, 5th uh, edition is now talk about high-level play years old. Um, that's sort of where we've reached. So. <laughs> um, so I want to start off by going around um, the, the panel here and ask people, what is your experience with high-level play generally, and high-level play in 5th edition specifically. Uh, let's start with uh, Jeremiah.
2: So, uh, I am old. <laughs> um, I've been around for a while. So my first experience with high-level play was an adventure called Throne of Bloodstone mm. from 1st edition. Wow. Um, came out in the 80s. Uh, it was part of a series of adventures. Uh, uh, there was like the uh, Bloodstone Wars, uh, Bloodstone Pass. Um, Throne of Bloodstone was the sort of final one in the the series, and it sort of barely exists in the in, in Forgotten Realms. Like it's in Forgotten Realms, but it doesn't involve anything else in the Forgotten Realms. It's just. Yeah, this is up in the north somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, in the, it's, uh, in, it's in the Bloodstone Lands, I believe, is what that area is called.
2: Yeah, wow. Basa. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, and um, in that adventure, uh, it was uh, evidence of the fact that they were struggling with what to do with high level play, even back then. Uh, had a um, rules for playing up to a hundredth level. <sighs>
0: <laughs> that is
2: kind of fun. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, your, the the pre that they made to sort of come with the character uh, with, with the adventure were eighteenth level, but and uh, it theoretically started at thirteenth level, uh, and you could play all the way up to a uh, hundredth. Um, and it gave extra rules for them, which I only vaguely remember. Cause it's been a long time, guys, right. and no. I haven't had enough sleep since then.
0: Since way back then, Merrick is in the is in the chat room, uh, giving us a history lesson on that specific series of adventures too. Apparently, it wasn't even originally in the Forgotten Realms, and they sort of re- yeah. retrofitted it to be that halfway through. That yeah, was marketing purposes. Yeah,
2: yeah. It, um, the 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 plot was: you are. Uh, if I remember correctly, you're there to fight against a Lich King in Vasa and to defeat him, you end up going to the Abyss to like the to, to find Orcus and destroy his wand to break the, the the Lich King's power.
0: Sure. So that was way back first edition. And have you done high, yeah. high level play then in every edition since?
2: No, uh didn't do much high level play in second edition. Okay. Did do some in third. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and in particular, I played around with the Gestalt system mm-hmm. that came out mm-hmm. in third edition. Um, and I have not done it since.
0: I, I, I happen to know, know for a fact you did some high level play in fourth edition.
2: Well, yeah, okay. I did because, some. Because I
0: DM'd it. <laughs>
2: That, that's true. That's true. I, I did play in the uh, reasonably high level in 4th edition. I left before you wrapped up the campaign, Oh, did you? Oh, but, okay, yeah. Yeah, because... But, but I did... I think we got to, to like, 13th level, which for...
0: Uh, well, okay. For, we'll for, we'll, we'll for, talk for, later whether or not that counts as high-level play.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I had to move out of uh, North okay. Carolina at that point. Yep. Um, but, yeah, and... and I I when I talked about it earlier this past week, one of the problems is getting a group that stays together long enough to have a high level game naturally, like doesn't start at a high level, but naturally hits a high level mm-hmm. is hard. It's a like long it takes a, it's a long time of playing and it always has been and that's why you haven't seen many options.
0: Okay. So, so you're, um, you're the, the anomaly here, I think, because um, w- I've been specifically sort of looking for people with, that had some experience. I guess I didn't ask Teos ahead of time what his experience was, but <laughs> I, I got the impression that he's got some experience, but you were the one who were the impetus behind this and, and started writing about it. So um, sure. So here you are, uh, and you have some experience from previous editions with high-level play. Uh, so Ryan, yeah. let's, let's go down the circle here for, to you now. What's your experience yeah. with, with high-level play in D&D?
3: Well, my my very first experience was sitting on my dad's lap while he was playing Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2, and watching... He would let me press the space bar to pause the game (laughs) uh, for the rounds, which was... That was my first experience, and I always thought being stronger was cooler, as most young people often think, right? Power is automatically more awesome in all circumstances. But I didn't have what I would call a sincere experience... Until third edition. There are a lot of theory crafting and hypothetical silliness. But uh, then I ran Age of Worms, uh, and that adventure blew my freaking mind Mm. as to how amazing it was. Um, Up until that point, I was fairly convinced that level was not a big factor when it came to storytelling, but I felt like there were Age of Worms showed me there were a few things that it really mattered what. The, the strength of the people in the stories was affecting the the type of stories you could tell, not in huge ways, but in subtle ways that did feel impactful as you put them all together into one big experience. Then I took a huge break from fourth edition because I went to college, um, as one does. And then when I came back for fifth and then we started our company a couple years ago to make RPG products for the system because it's the OGL is so generous and, I'm very privileged to be able to do that. One of the things I always wanted to do was, was one of our goals was to do things no one else had did. So we, we created an epic level 5e system called Epic Legacy, which goes from 21 to 30, sort of in the spirit of 4th edition. And we wanted to not repeat any of the mistakes of the past. So I took 5e and I took levels 10 to 20 and I just tore it apart because I wanted to figure out how not to screw this up. And then we made that system and people really liked it. And then we made a bestiary of CR 10 and up only of a hundred monsters where we only wanted to do like really quality ones over quantity, really focus on delivering compelling experiences in that area. Between those two books, I must have run over a thousand hours of of high level characters, specifically in the 15 plus range when we were doing play tests for the bestiaries. And then... I ran a couple campaigns just to prove my theories, right, because I wanted to make sure everything worked, and it, it, was, a, it was a ride. <laughs> I learned a lot, and that was some of the most fun time I've ever spent playing D&D, was just poking around and watching my players do amazing things I'd never even thought of, and then also thinking of amazing ways to, like, counter and interact with them. Uh, and that's been the last two years of my, my designer experience has been almost exclusively in that area. It's awesome
0: yeah yeah right on so uh teos tell us about your experience then with high level play uh, uh, uh mike Shea is in the chat and desperately wants to hear from you thanks
1: mike uh who's he My- just kidding mike's <laughs> wonderful uh so i missed out on the spandex rules also known as the immortal set,
2: oh. uh, mm. set.
0: i had that too uh, uh, i think i still it's do it's- yeah
2: yeah, I, I, I had those rules. I just never reached the point of being able to play with them.
1: The, the immortal rules, and those of you on the stream can see, uh, was all about being scantily clad
2: as you reach epic <laughs> level.
1: You don't need all that uh, armor and, when you're godlike.
2: Yeah, clothes optional.
1: <laughs> so I, I read, I read through that stuff, but I didn't play it. Uh, I did play through Throne of Bloodstone. So just like you, you know, I had a super fun time with oh going through all these levels. And it was the the end of my uh, college campaign. So w- it was the fourth year of college, and, and we ended with that. And I think we got as far as level 32. We had to do one session where we all got together at my house after college to actually finish it and kill Orcus, uh, well actually kill Tiamat, kill Orcus and Tiamat, uh, and finish it all up. Because of course you have to bathe the wand of Orcus in Tiamat's blood. To really destroy it and save Vasa, which is a big pain. Uh, so they just tack in, oh, by the way, why don't you kill Tiamat, too? Because it's that kind of thing. Uh, and then I played uh, third edition. You know, we've got the, the epic level handbook. We did some of that oh kind gosh. of stuff. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I reached the max levels and that good stuff through organized play. Uh, retired characters, and that was a lot of fun. And then uh, 4th edition, I got to play the epic Living Forgotten Realms campaign, which was amazing, Mm -hmm. super story, incredible campaign. Uh, All kinds of ridiculousness in terms of what kind of 4E threats you fought against. Uh, And then now in 5th edition, I'm in the Tier 4 play for Adventurers League with my, uh, I think, third character that I started. So I've got a ranger that's now, I think uh mod away from 19th and i did also play in james tercaso's planet uh, invasion of the invasion from the planet of Tarasques, <laughs> uh, which is a level 20 adventure for 5e that's a super gonzo and fun
0: yeah right on so uh i started playing with second edition we got some games up into um Yeah, I definitely got into some epic level games in in second edition and we had a a, a thing going on with my game group where uh, especially by the time we got to high school, the game group was sort of like everybody had a a folder full of characters. Uh, and who, whatever person wanted to run an adventure, we would just like, uh, it's about this level. So everybody would just pull out whatever characters they had at that level, uh, and then play them. Right. Uh, and so there was no like major through campaign, but we actually, I mean, we played those characters generally speaking all the way up from level one, uh, and, and many of them ended up being, um, epic levels or uh, high levels, um, 15 plus up to 20 ish, uh, over time. Um, and then third edition, um, I feel certain I played some, some high level, uh, games in third edition. I don't know that I can name them cause that was a long time ago. And, uh, like Jeremiah, I'm also old. Um, I mean, I'm not Jeremiah old, but I'm getting there. I'll catch you someday. I
2: hate you. <laughs> I, I hate you. Uh, um.
0: and, 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 then, uh, but fourth edition, I, I played, I played at least one, one to 30 campaign. And maybe – I might have had two campaigns that got 1 to 30, and this, the second one might have gotten close uh, into the epic tier uh, of 4th edition because, of course, in 4th edition, levels went from 1 to 30 instead of 1 to 20 like all the other editions. And uh, now in 5th edition, I've I've played one campaign all the way, 1 through 20. Um, I had a playtest campaign. I think in that one, we made it up to 20-ish uh, in the playtest um, campaign. Um during the, when it was D&D Next, right? Um, and I've got another one that's going to go into into high levels right now, but right now they're just knocking on the doors of, of fifth level. So, uh, but I have plans.
3: <laughs>
0: so. so that was a, a lengthy introduction, but I think, I think worthwhile for all of us. Um, I, I want to ask the question first. Um, we're talking about high level play, but obviously... In different games and in different editions, what we call high-level play might be different, right? Obviously, in fourth edition, high-level play was explicitly detailed as level 21 through 30, right? Other games might have different leveling systems, what have you. Uh, So what do we call – how do we define high-level play? What do we think?
2: Um. So, like you said, it's addition specific. One of the things that I use as a sort of a measure is less about what level range. I mean, it is level range. You, the most powerful uh, character class traditionally at high levels was wizards, especially in old editions. Mean, yeah. yeah, like magic user, whatever the name of it at the time was. Yeah. Uh, the older editions made, you know, they were insanely powerful. Um, once you could start casting eighth level spells, which in these days would be 15th level. Um, and I think that would, would be a definition that at least most people would accept as high level play in fifth edition. Um, you know, different people will have different experiences. Obviously, if you're using rules for 21 to 30 obviously you have you're, you're you're setting the bar a little bit differently but for standard fifth edition play that's like the top tier I think it's fourth fourth tier is what 16 through 20 something like that 17 17 through 20 okay yeah. Um, so yeah I, I think that once you're able to cast eighth level spells I think you're you're in the the high level play range because you can do things that are nuts. With uh, with a spell Yeah maybe um, that's
1: That's a good generic term Is just that point where you can cast spells That are sort of bending the rules right
2: Yeah yeah I mean When, when you can do things like cause earthquakes And uh, you know Oh that monster yeah he's mine I control him or you know I'm just going to create a fortress here Because I can So my fighter you know? will never be high level Because <laughs> he'll never but, cast 8th level spells
1: you have to look at your friends
2: and see what uh. they're
1: doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still it's, casting friends.
2: That fighters at high levels have a name. It's meat shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're the speed bump between the caster and whatever's coming to stop the caster. Accept this and move on. Right. That that's a joke, but obviously different <laughs> different styles and everything. But sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, once you get up to the levels where you can like summon fortresses and you know, uh, create clouds of, of, of gas that can kill like small armies. And, you know, that's, that's when you're okay. Yeah. You're, 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 you're in high levels. Okay. And, um, traditionally the fighter path at that point was things like you have an army. Basically you have a castle and, and, and minions who work for you and so on. So that was their expression of high power.
0: Right. Any other sort of um, hallmarks of of high level play, or, or tweaks that we want to make to, to Jeremiah's definition? Or does that sound good to us?
3: Yeah, I, I would. I would, in the interest of sort of being fair to the martial characters, um, I would. I would define it as agency in your ability so much so far as that you at higher levels. What you can and cannot do is completely different than what you can and cannot do at lower levels, right? Like, I would say your your opportunity cost for doing most things has gone way, 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 way down. So an average, like, 20th-level fighter, for example, in 5e, if you're a champion, is one of the highest damage-per-round-dealing classes in the game, mm. um, competing with, like, Paladin and Hexblade Warlock. Right. And we're talking like hundreds of damage on like lucky rolls in some cases. Right. And, and, or, you know, you can do all these amazing things. Whereas if you tried these things at low levels, at the very minimum, the outcome would be far more in question. Mm -hmm. Or, or the consequences for doing so would be extreme. You can't walk up to the king and snap his neck at level five because. You know, obviously, there <laughs> you could, but the cost of doing so right. would be so extreme that you wouldn't, you'd never want to, kind of thing. At, high, level like at point, high levels,
0: you could do it and and take on the army.
3: Yeah, so I I often <laughs> see it as a as a question of agency and freedom, mm. where um, oftentimes at lower levels, I think you you know where the boundaries are, in and in, in higher levels, less so.
1: I could I could tie off of that a bit. Uh, along the story axis, you begin to, especially starting with 3rd edition and D&D and moving on, you begin to really define who you are. Mm. So, you know, you're a fighter, but then you choose a path of some sort, whether it's Paragon or an Epic Destiny, whatever it might be. You choose some mechanism by which you start to really build up what you are, uh, and you see the fruits of that. You really make choices that define what kind of person you are, um, and that becomes, you know, a real presence at the table in the way that you do things. And you are different than another level, whatever it is, high level of your same class. Okay. But it's worth noting that other RPGs don't even use levels, right? So you have something like Shadowrun where you spend points to boost your shooting or your decking or your ability scores right? or Legend of the Five Rings. and So it can be really hard in other uh, editions where you don't have levels. Um, because you can choose to go along one way that you're increasing your character versus another, and it can be very difficult uh, to decide what really is high-level play. Um, mm. And a lot of the games don't even bother, right? They don't have a per se mm. high-level game or rules for it.
0: Yeah, it, uh, I, I th- my my favorite non-D&D game of the last several years has been Torg Eternity, and they don't have levels at all but they still kind of have tiers cuz you're the idea is that you're working within an organization and there are clearance levels. And so after, you know, a certain point in the game you reach next another clearance level and that opens up new uh, you know, ability options for for player characters and and eventually you can make it to, you know, super powerful world shattering clearance levels where, you know, you you know everything and can kind of do whatever you want. Uh, Jeremiah?
2: I was going to say there is so there's two discussions that go on here. I, I suppose I started with the mechanical, right? Mm-hmm. What mechanical thing defines high-level play? Yes. Um, and, you know, the character options being another example, like they were saying, you know, at what point does your character begin to define itself beyond just being a standard fighter, a standard wizard, or what have you, where they where their power is a definition by itself? Um. But the the story level of high-level play is super hard to define. Um, And I think part of that is our source fiction. Um, So if you ask anyone, any Joe Schmo walking around in Western society, what a fantasy story would be, they're probably going to think of Lord of the Rings. That's fair. I mean, and a lot of D&D's tropes come from there. Mm -hmm. And that moment when
1: Frodo used his level 30 ability, that was amazing.
2: That's the problem. (laughs) Like, 90% of everything that happens in Lord of the Rings would not rise above six level abilities for D&D terms. Right. Yeah, that's where the epic 6th concept comes from. Right. Um, Right. Uh and but no one no one can really argue that isn't an epic story. Like that's an epic story. Like mm-hmm. they're saving the world.
0: But it's not um, a high level story. Right. And one could and,
2: argue it's not a high level world. Right. right. It's no, exactly for, right. for that world it is yeah. high level. Um and you know, if you want to play that world, go play the Lord of the Rings uh D&D Port that uh, that, they, that they recently is, lost
0: the license for, but that's
2: another Right, story. <laughs> Sadly, but but you can still find the books, and it's fun. But more to the point, um, when you're looking at high level play on a story level, you've got to look for other sources of inspiration. Um, you can look at some of the D and D books uh, because there are some novels that mm-hmm. that demonstrate it. certainly some of the the the, the later. Um, Driss novels definitely okay, and the yeah. elements the yeah. stories
0: are, are there. I mean,
2: yeah, yeah, um, and a lot of times it, it it feels like they wrote a story to match what the character could do,
0: mm.
2: like mechanically, and then that's how they got their high level story rather than like uh, a a a the the uh, the avatar trilogy yeah. should be a high level story right but I think the adventures were not actually all that high level um, yeah. but yeah I mean it's world shaking. Mm-hmm. your ability to affect beyond just the local is right. an element of high level play.
0: Uh, Merrick in the stream is pointing out or asking uh, about Avengers Endgame as uh, source material for epic level or high-level play, right? Because you're taking sure. on the big threat and you're time-traveling and changing the universe. And I think that's, in my mind, that's in... And this is where I, w- I wanted to go into the what kind of stories we tell in high-level play anyway next. So that's that works out well. Thank you. Um, in my mind, that's a big changeover, right? It, before high-level play, like you work to thwart the plans of the demon lords. In high-level play, you go take on the demon lord, right? And and it's that's the same reason why I think you're right that Lord of the Rings is not high-level play. Because if it was, it wouldn't be defeat the plans of Sauron. It would be, well, there's going to be a team of adventurers and they're going to go take on Sauron, right? And they're putting together the things they need to beat him. Uh, and that's sort of the switchover in my mind when you're telling high-level play stories, or at least one of the switchovers,
2: yeah, and I think that um, uh, it, that the Tolkien Lord, uh, you know, aficionados uh, will will point to the Cimmerilian and the uh, and some of the other sort of extended fiction for it. Well, if you want an example of that, go look at you know the stories in the um, but, yeah, it, it, you've got to establish what, you're, what sort of fiction you're trying to emulate. I think um,
1: both things... I'd argue that you have your stories that are epic that really anybody can play, right? So, like, 5th mm-hmm. uh, Edition has done that whole hog, right, from taking on Tiamat at relatively low levels, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, at the end it gets pretty high, but it's still not, you know, it's not a high-level campaign. Nope. Start at level 1. Or, I don't think,
0: I don't think uh, any of the campaigns go past 15, do they?
1: No, well... Uh,
2: Dungeon maybe, of the Mage is the oh, only one. No.
1: Right, 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 yep. Uh, and, and they don't, uh, you know, they don't say, uh, they, they, well, let's say they start at first, right? So you okay. take on the Death Curse with Tomb of Annihilation. And it's not a high-level game, and you do face off against, you know, a powerful ancient foe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen plenty of that, right, that, that we're still doing sort of Lord of the rings where you can be low-level and you can have an amazing, awesome story. You don't have to be Mike Shea uh, fighting rats in a cellar. <laughs> called out. Called out. No, no, no. I love you, Mike. Um, but you also can say, I think that that you know we are called to do those epic Avengers Endgame type things where we do feel like superheroes. The threat is huge. Right. It's plainer. It's ancient eldritch horrors come from before. It's Tharizdun. It's. Orcus, right? It's those big things that oh, I think are the hallmarks of that kind of game.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, um, as is often the case these days, uh, Critical Role is the the elephant in the room. Uh, they provided a really good example of what high level play when they wrapped uh, wrapped up the first campaign. Like they're taking on a nascent god who is marching towards a city on the. Uh, inside an uh, automatous city himself.
1: Right.
0: Not to get get too splurry, but yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And also, I mean, one credit to that campaign is that at the end, they are uh, doing the culmination of major arcs involving the characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, The characters are doing... Amazing choices at the last seconds, right? Whether to how to use a wish spell uh, versus counterspell, you know, do you save your friend or stop the evil person from fleeing? I mean, really good epic play right there. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. The the consequences are there. And and that's that's important in high level play.
0: And that starts to get into another topic I wanted to discuss is um, like one of the things that is done there is. That story is engaging the players at high level in, in in those character moments, right? That's one of the things you can do to make high-level play work is that the narrative kind of is the narrative regardless of level, right? The scope of the narrative might be different. And one of the things I notice when you look at that campaign um, – and I can speak to the end of it fairly um, recently because I just finished it uh, about a month ago <laughs> listening to the audio um, – is that the, there is a lot of narrative and there is a lot of character development, but it's mostly between each other. Like there's very little sort of major character development outside of that group, right? The, so you provide those those opportunities to role play. You provide those opportunities for them to develop in that way. Um, but this gets into some player advice as well. Like the players should look for those opportunities to – to push the narrative and enjoy the story as much as, you know, going out and killing things with, with you know, big giant god things, right?
3: Uh, well, one of the problems I encounter a lot is that 5e is very top-heavy. Um, and, and what often ends up happening, because when you create a new 5th edition character, you create a lot of interesting things besides just rolling up the stats and picking the... Um, you know, the the class and whatnot. You're picking a background, ideals, bonds, and flaws. And these never change no matter what level you are. And I find this a very peculiar circumstance, and one that I've started to revise in my games, where every five levels, my players revise their ideals, bonds, and flaws. Because in my opinion, the most important parts of your character's personality and their lives are what happens over the course of the adventure, not what preceded. it, mm-hmm. Usu- usually. Uh, in some circumstances, you know, I think it's appropriate to keep elements from the past, but I, I really like this reassessment of what it means to be a person doing the things that you are doing. Yeah, um, that, I, I just, like that just to became give... a
0: house rule in my game, so thank you.
3: Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. So so what ends up happening is is when I give my players these this a, a moment to reflect every five levels, instead of just taking count of the mechanical advantages that they have gained. Which is something you're always doing because the game forces you to. They take account of the story moments they have used and accrued and added to their characters. They're they're rewriting their stories or in, in some cases my players spend much more time writing down how their character felt about the adventures when I give them the opportunity to and use that to define new aspects of their personality. Being like, you know, my character died at 13th level and... I didn't get brought back to life for a week. I'm like, yeah, what happened while you were dead? Because we're playing in a Planescape cosmology. So you went somewhere. What was that like? And then the player can choose to make that experience something of their own. And this starts to, I think, encourage epic storytelling, where normally you're given just the mechanics to encourage epic storytelling, which are many of which are wonderful. There's lots of storytelling mechanics in 5e, but but I like to take that opportunity to spend a little more time on on front of the player assessing their character's personality and how they've grown and changed. To sort of mirror Merrick's statement on Avengers Endgame, I think part of what made that story so epic was it was a story culmination of how those people had changed over the course of several movies. And that was sort of actually the inspiration for me to prescribe this for my, people using my epic system. And even just high level, my encountering high level stuff in general, I constantly encourage reflection about what those adventures have changed about those characters, Mm. and I find that dramatically improves people's commitment to playing those characters. With burnout being such a huge factor.
2: Sure. Yeah. I, I think one of the elements of being that that end of the the power scale is you are no longer afraid of what would be considered in most fantasy settings, minor problems. Like, okay, there, there are dozens of orcs. We can we can deal with this and, right. like, sit down and have a, <laughs> a snack afterwards. This is not a problem. Um, we don't even have to, like, take a short rest for this. What, what are you talking about?
0: You, you, you when suddenly you become to... Spider-Man and the bank robbers, right? The bank robbers
2: right, are yeah, no but, longer a threat. Right. So once the threat becomes higher what you're willing to pay to defeat that threat also becomes a thing that a conversation that the players should be having with themselves and with their DMS to a certain extent. Uh, and if it's not that, if it's just, well, you're just outpowering it. Yeah. You, it might be high, high level, but it doesn't feel good. Like it doesn't feel like a good use of, 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 of where you're at. Uh, because a- after a certain level you know, and certain power, uh, you know, I've run into this in, in LARPs too, like okay, I'm just going to go do this thing because I can just outpower it. Um, and you, you, when you were running a high level game, you need to think about what is this going to cost these super powerful beings? You have to come up with something that will cost them. And it's not just throwing so much heavy stuff at them that it will kill eventually kill them. It, it, it shouldn't be, a, a, you know, who's got the biggest stick. It, it should be more nuanced than that.
0: Does mm-hmm. so, that make sense? So this transi- transitions us well. Then it also feels like, as a DM, it gets harder and harder to appropriately challenge the
3: characters in
0: high-level play. So... How, what do we think about that? It looks like Ryan has an opinion.
3: I mean, this is like my jam. So I, I <laughs> we wrote the total the total party kill bestiary volume one, uh, and that's CR ten and up monsters. And when we did it, we 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 took all the expertise we had running high level games, and we said, let's make monsters. But uh, there's a section at that start of the book where I say, what does it mean to challenge high level players? Mm-hmm. And often I, I say, well, these monsters are very powerful. What makes them compelling isn't that they can threaten a TPK, though that is a very fun element of it. Um, what makes them interesting is that they can threaten what the players care about. Mm. Their items, the people, their worlds, their homes. And this is how you should use them. Because players can come back to life with a third-level spell slot, right? Right. It's not about killing them. It's about sending a message. And the message should be, these things are scary. So the question is, is how do you scare someone with something so powerful? So an example we use, we have a, one of our, our creatures in there. We call it a gracious humility based on a uh, holy virtue. And when it zeroes you out, it doesn't kill you. It shrinks you down to a tiny little person. And it's a floating island surrounded by uh, halos. It's small, big, but a tiny, you know, model island and it puts you on there so if a tpk is the party they all end up on this island and you can't escape unless you learn a lesson of true humility then the celestial lets you leave alternatively you can try and trick it but it has expertise and insight so you can be like please sir we've learned our lesson let (laughs) us out and it's like no no you can't (laughs) leave right so it's it's a cr like 17 18 19 but the point is 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 you can use it to just whoop some ass on some players but they don't die they don't get tpk'd but they do have a moment where you're teaching high level players humility they have to learn an authentic humble lesson before they can pass that encounter Mm. and every time i've used that my players have been like that made me so upset but in all the right ways right like the and that's a compelling experience, a compelling challenge for them. Mm-hmm. A high-level character had to learn humility. And that's sort of one of my best examples, but um, sort of echoing, like, what does it mean to challenge them? It's just, like, go after what they care about. Like, they're proud. They, they love their loot. Take one of their favorite shiny toys. Just watch them lose their minds. It's amazing, Con- right? Consequ- Consequ-
2: consequence damage.
3: Right. Yes, conse- focus on consequences and realize that death is no longer a consequence. Not it doesn't mean the same thing.
0: Well, and that's this part of that's sure. part of the trick, right? Is that uh, you know when I ran my I, I, I mashed up the Rada Seven Parts out of the Abyss and Princes of the Apocalypse into one campaign, right? And it, and it concludes with the the big demon lord battle royale sort of thing that Out of the Abyss concludes with, and um, you know you want to make a fight with demon lords a challenge. Uh, a legitimate challenge uh, at any level. Um, But that's hard because you don't know what the players are going to do because there's no way you can know what they can do. Like any individual character is so complex and has so many options uh, available to them. You can't predict any one character and then you put them together and the combinations they can put up – put together. Uh, it's it's very hard to provide just a straight up like mechanical challenge like you could at a, a fifth level party fighting the, the the big warlord or whatever, right? Um and so it's a different sort of challenge, and so I really like that idea of of lean into the consequences. Like they need to the bad guys need to be able to mechanically like survive, right? Uh, but but they have to they have to focus on the on different different consequences. I like that idea.
1: I think historically, the editions have done a very poor job uh, upon release of meeting what's needed. To provide a numerical mathematical challenge mm. to characters at the point in time when they reach those levels where they're playing high level, right? Mm. Which is usually after several books have been released, after they've been playing their character for some time, after they've become experts. And you're running these monsters that were designed way back when, 4th uh, you know, edition sort of famously had some information out there of how they never tested, they never play tested high level play. Right. In fact, they even thought about releasing it separately and then kind of decided, no, because high level never sells well, so let's just roll it all in one. But it just really didn't work, right? And I think it's important to to, as a DM when you're running high level uh, to think through and talk with your players about what that desire for challenge really is. Because we tend to think of it as Knife's Edge, as Avengers Endgame. Everybody could die. Anything could happen. We don't know who's not going to come back. But most players kind of really like their character around then and aren't necessarily looking... They might want an epic feel, but they could easily actually want to have overwhelming victory against a god. right? So it's, we have to have a conversation and think through what is it that players really want.
3: Yeah, and I I do want to push back a little bit on the idea that 5e is... is too complicated at higher levels or this idea that it gets out of hand because it's never, and this has like been my mantra, it's never been easier in D&D, in my opinion, to run a high-level game, right? Like, going from Age of Worms in 3.5 to a 5e hack that I'm running now, it's like night and day. Um, it's amazing um, how how much easier it is, which isn't to say easy, right. But but certainly I think it's a thing that the average DM... Much can readily aspire to do much more readily, and I think that there is a a perception of a wall that isn't as solid as people think. It, they see it as this incredibly steep mountain, but I think it's much more of a. Uh, once you figure out the the tr- like what force cage is and and how paladins fish for crits and all that stuff, you start to realize that at least after you know my my hundreds of hours of games that it's, it's, the system is still elegant, and it holds yeah. up so well. Like, yeah, players have Wish, but there's some big restrictions on that. One eighth-level slot a day, right? They're not going to be wasting that. They're going to hold that in reserve, that that world-changing spell for a key pivotal moment, and you can bank on that, right? Mm-hmm. You can, whereas, like, in 3-5, it's like, this is my fourth eighth-level slot for the day. I have four more. What level are you? 15. Right. right? It's like, geez louise. Um... But it's right. it's so satisfying to, to run a high level five e encounter that goes great. It's yeah. just like I want that experience for everybody because it's I, so satisfying.
0: I think I largely agree with you, but I also agree with Merrick in the in the chat here that uh, while five e is way easier than third edition and before, uh, fourth edition was arguably easier just mm. because the math was so obvious and it was really transparent which was also one of its major flaws uh because yeah, it, the game became overly much about the math instead of about um the role-playing right
3: oh um, yeah and 4e my my weak point as a designer so sure. i 100 percent believe Merrick right. when he says something like
1: fourth that. edition is just a scale so <laughs> right. well, well, it's particularly well, scale upwards so it's, it's the same game and you're just telling a story with it right yeah right there's some differences I, 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 but it's basically that
2: yeah. Well, no, also, I, right. I mean, mechanically, the structure limiting you to use of certain number of daily encounter and at will right. powers meant that the the amount that you could throw at a particular problem was scaled right. up to the level that you were at, but it wasn't actually all that more than you could at lower levels it's just more damage more abilities but yep. but the actual amount that you were throwing was about the same right
1: <laughs> me still has a lot of issues i think for new dms with uh, mm. counter spell. Yeah. uh there are just so many things that as you start playing these various spells begin and even in middle tier begin to shape the experience in problematic ways, right? We see it in organized play for sure. Mm-hmm. We hear about it on forums. There are plenty of DMs that are like, I don't know how to threaten my players. They just polymorphed into, you know, pixie, or they just summoned a bunch of pixies who all polymorphed into T-Rexes, and they want to <laughs> do this every encounter. Right. Uh, right. There's just plenty of that, and, and it's because there is that level of mastery, particularly around spells, that is troubling for DMs. Yeah. Uh, and some of it requires just, unfortunately, research, right? The DM has to read their way through the problem or think through counterspell. What's the range on that? How do How do I counterspell a counterspell? Do
0: you think yeah. that is exacerbated in organized play versus home play?
1: I mean, I read plenty of forums when I dare do so that seem <laughs> to have... If not greater problems with it in home play situations, uh, you know it depends. Uh, I played at a home at a I played at a level ten table with a group. This was organized play, but it was a group that play at home. We walk into the first encounter, and there's like a cool aboleth. I'm like, sweet, never fought one. I'm excited to do this. And the, so the guy banishes the uh, the aboleth. And then uh, everything else was a joke. And my designer brain, I'm like, oh my god, we've just neutered this encounter. There's nothing to threaten us. And in fact, there was nothing. So we killed it in a few minutes. uh, And then everybody readied and destroyed the Aboleth when it reappeared. It never got to act. We go to the next room. Uh, He banishes whatever the big thing was in that room. Mm. And we get to the third encounter. And before we open the door, I say, so what if we don't banish whatever's inside? (laughs) Because I know you're a diviner, you're setting the DCs, you got all this stuff. What if we don't? What if we just fight it and see if we need to do anything? And you don't hypnotic pattern, and you don't counterspell the thing's spells. Like, let's just see what happens. And they were like, haha, no. They're like, we run for each other, and we take turns DMing. And whoever DMing just has to deal with the fact that we're going to throw this at them. And we just take turns. I'm like, well, what if you didn't do that? And they they were they just laughed. They're like, no, we can't imagine a world where we don't just torture each
2: other. Well, I mean, to be <laughs> fair, asking players not to play their characters to the power level that they built up to is sort of asking them to ignore a thing that was a path for them. Like, yeah. this is a reward. You got this po- this power because you played this long. Yeah. Uh, you know, once they get up to that level, then asking them, hey, don't do that. Okay you you've disabled my reward and
0: and and Uh, i think there's a good argument on both sides of that conversation right on one hand like absolutely like with my players have gotten they're clever they figured out what the bad guy is they figured out a strategy that works like reward that if they're doing it every encounter now now you're you're yucking my yum you know yeah well
2: and it it, my my response and you know um has been traditionally when dealing with players doing the same trick over and over again. Was, all right, I know your trick. I know yeah. how to counter that trick, mm. so all right. But I that depends mean.
1: on the edition, right? So like in 4th edition, I ran an interactive, and there was a guy playing a pre errata Blood Mage, uh, and he had a combination of Solid Fog and his Blood Mage power and other stuff in 4th edition that basically meant... The entire battlefield was covered in this stuff where if a monster moved, they took insane damage. And if they stayed still, they took insane damage. And by insane, I mean they're basically dead in two rounds. And he could do this every round or every encounter. Sure. And so after the first encounter of what's supposed to be a thrilling, challenging interactive, I said, hey, I know you've got your character. You're clearly loving it. What do you think about we, like, don't quite use all of that and he's like well I, you know and he said it's like well i get to it's my stuff i'm like i know but like i mean i think you know i can't threaten anybody at this table if this is happening and i know you can do this and he's like well and so finally we, we brokered a deal where he used just one of his abilities and not the three of them that caused the chaos but i mean it took he was kind of complaining right but i mean it was really unplayable if he did what he did right
3: yeah we'll, uh-huh. One of the things I think it's important to keep in mind, too, is is the challenge system is not being used properly in the overwhelming majority of these cases because the players have magic items, usually more than they should. The players are multi-classing, which is a variant. The players have feats, which is a variant. All of these things are making characters, on average, much more powerful, especially in organized play. Because I, I think at the start of organized play, they were like, "No multiclassing," and people like had a riot. I, I think I remember hearing something about that, and and that's that shouldn't that should affect how the encounters are built, but it hasn't. For the overwhelming majority of designs that i have seen where the stuff needs to the monsters need to be the the system needs to be adjusted for the fact that the average characters are sh- much stronger than they should to be like resistance to bludgeoning piercing and slashing damage from non-magic weapons that's almost never a thing because martial characters always have the magic weapon they want but it's very clearly factored into design math to effectively double a creatures hit points it's intended to be there so when you don't when that isn't a challenge factor your creatures hit points is halved and when we did our bestiary we just said we're gonna look at each monster and we're just gonna like treat it like it was four higher cr wise when we're comparing it to relative examples and it's gone great because the players are getting challenged and also killing them doesn't mean anything so a deadly encounter at level 15 kills two characters okay right but it's still called a deadly encounter you're only supposed to do one but the reality is is they could do three right and 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 if we think about the game in that way, suddenly it becomes so much more interesting and challenging at high levels and still fair. I've had players in my best year eight playtests fight a CR18, a CR20, and a 24 and finish with a 27 with 18th level characters with two magic items each. It was a narrow thing, but they did it. Right. And this was with my like harder stuff, my my best year design to be hard designer expertise stuff. Did they think they could do it? No. They're like, oh, there's no way we can't do this. And then they scraped a win. And I was just like, that's awesome. Look at them go like these guys are killing it. Um, So I was just convinced. I'm like, man, we could just make this so much harder and they'll still scrape a win. Like just go nuts on them And, and don't tell them what the CR is. Right. Don't tell them. They don't care if they just killed a 20 or not, as long as it's. Feels like it belongs
2: there. Right. And also, they're twelve. I, I think that going back to the consequences, like, sure, you can overpower this, you know, small army of ogres, absolutely. Unfortunately, yeah. while you're doing that, they're killing the people in the town you're in. You need to find other ways of dealing with this. Or, uh, yeah, you can go fight the 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 lich, but he's got his minions attacking the things you care about. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's, pr- unless you've got his phylactery, he's probably going to get away. Yeah. So, you know, dealing with the consequences is a good way to sort of trump the outpowering issue. Yeah. Uh, that said, yeah, increase, definitely increase the HP uh, on pretty much any high level monster that's been printed, L- like, uh, by at least a quarter. Uh, because yeah. almost all of them would not last three rounds, yeah. and most when I get on to... level things, fighting them will just chew them up like right. a chainsaw. Yeah. I don't.
0: I don't know that I've ever gone into like the a high level boss fight sort of situation and not uh, modified and tweaked and redesigned um, the creatures that I use just to make sure that it's not a a cakewalk, right? For sure. uh, yeah. and, and to keep them. Challenged because because at that point like we're getting high level and we're running up to the boss at this point I've seen their tricks and I know that they're going to surprise me and I have to sort of be ready for that and that's where you got to throw in the a few extra legendary resistances or or you know that kind of stuff uh, some layer actions or whatever
3: um, yeah.
0: just to keep a challenge um, at that point and and it, and like we talked about it's not necessarily a mechanical challenge but I need it to not be a pushover. Enough to the point that we can talk about those sort of consequence damage things that, that have come up. So,
1: yeah. I think it's also a player thing, right? In that mm-hmm. uh, players do bear responsibility for successful campaigns or successful organized play programs, successful one shots at a convention, you know, whatever it might be. Um, for example, taking quick turns, you can get high level and it can get really complicated, but you should be able to take a quick turn. Um, you know, don't have the leadership feat in third edition with a druid companion with a beast when you're a ranger with a beast. And then cast a summoning spell. Like you know, that's yeah. not cool. Um and even in five medium levels, you know, think about those summoning spells and what they do to gameplay.
3: Uh, so creatures with pixies, right? That's the one everyone does. Yeah. yeah. Or at least have the conversation with your DM. Hey, i
2: I I recognize this will take longer. This is a shtick I'm leaning into. What can we do to make this work easier? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, if you know that's going to be your shtick, have the monster card sitting next to your character sheet. I summoned this thing. Boom. I have all his stats. I don't need to worry about it. My game master knows what I'm summoning. He's seen those stats. I talked to him beforehand. So this is just adding an extra thing to the... It, it, the overall combat sure it adds a little bit more to the time but because I've talked it out with people right we all knew it was coming
0: and that kind of yeah. leans, leans into my last question was was about as a player how do you navigate the complexity of of a high level pc to help the game flow like it's important i think generally when playing D&D to pay attention and to help make your, your round go smoothly and, and flow and, and move through things. But it becomes extra important at high level because otherwise, you know, uh, you might spend an entire game session with one big combat and, and that's it, right?
3: Yeah.
1: I mean, one thing for the player side is it's really important to have... Especially in a long campaign, right? Uh, be clear around your goals and aspirations, because that's often what makes a campaign super memorable. Is that you, you know, you want to take over the thieves' guild, mm-hmm. or you want to be, you want to grow to be the, the person who secretly controls the Senate, right? If you can do that kind of stuff, the DM's going to love it. The other players are going to feed off of it. And it's going to be really memorable whether the fights are super challenging or not, it's going to be really neat
2: story-wise. Yeah. It, scale is also a thing that you want to talk with. Uh, the players should talk with their DM, and the DM should talk to their players about, uh, are you concentrating on a on a kingdom level? Like, you you guys top in play might be you're a duke in the kingdom. Cool. Great. Make sure that that's understood. If the top end play is we're fighting gods. Cool. That's great. But you need to make sure that the scale is communicated because that rogue player may be going, wow, I really hope I'm the uh, thieves guild head someday. And the, and the DM's thinking I'm going to destroy that city. Cause gods showed up and uh, did evil things. Oops. Right. Yeah.
0: So, there's a, yeah, as, as is often the case, uh, communication is important,
3: right? Yeah. yeah. One of the, the best experiences I've had come when the players see an opportunity to break it, the, the, the carefully constructed model the DM just spent 12 hours on, and then they choose not to because they're not here to do that. If yeah. you can play a high-level game and be that person, you're the best. Um, that wasn't the case in all of our tests cuz we were trying to break things and figure out when all the mm. monstrous stuff was so we could avoid it but be that person if you can be that person everyone will love mm. your 5e game so much more especially your dm cuz they're already doubling tripling quadrupling their hours to prep a session right. and then when you do that it's there's no there's no way to feel good about that like it's right. you can smile and laugh but there's a part of your soul that
1: just well, you know, got ripped out. And- it's important to say that that's also for, for non-combat scenes, right? Mm-hmm. So things like being able to read the mind of the guy who's giving you the job, um, being able to detect their alignment or know whether they're telling the truth or cast divinations or any number of things, right? Find object, locate object, that sort of stuff. Um, it, a, a nice way to do it is to say to the DM, I'm thinking about using this spell or feature. Uh, is that cool? And they might, and that gives them some time to think about it and go like, well, um, you know, you're not sure if it'll work, or you know, they can at least start thinking about what they want to do with that mm-hmm. and formulate an answer. Versus, I cast, you know, zone of truth, and we won't take the job unless they do this, and this is always what we do, and that's the end of story. Nobody can ever lie to us.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, no,
0: and I actually I had uh, a player do that in my my one to twenty fifth edition campaign where. um we were getting into the higher levels, and he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna be an illusionist. I'm going into that school, and and he was he was reworking his character um, at that point. And he's like, "I'm gonna do illusionism, uh, the illusionist thing. Right? Is that cool? Because like between mirage arcana and these other uh, illusions that sort of change the entire uh, battlefield, and then my ability to make parts of it real and and change things like that combination could be." Problematic if you're not ready for that, right? And so we had that conversation and talked about how it would work and and where he might limit that and and what have you. Uh, and I really appreciated that as a DM that he's like, "Hey, I am looking at a combination that looks really cool. Is that going to be a problem? Like, or right. should you know, should I do something else?" And that was really really smart uh, of on his part. Uh,
2: for for yeah. me, I like to. I'm a uh, I'm a guy who loves minutia. Like I I like sort of iterating out the, the implications of something. So if somebody is regularly casting zone of truth, for instance, well, first I'm going to look at the spell and see what it costs. Mm -hmm. Um, which I actually don't know off the top of my head, but, um, you know, does it have material components? All right. If I want to cast less often, I cut down on those material components. Uh, you know, it's, that's a thing that comes up with Ray's dead. Okay, yeah, sure, you can, you've got the spell. Do you have the diamond? Right. Uh,
1: How because... How many Crowsbeast bulls are there in the world, says Mike right. Check.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, so those, dealing with those those costs and the minutiae of those spells because people look at the, the effects and don't always think about, well, what is this costing me? The other thing is like, all right, if this is a common thing, then everybody has this. Uh And that means that's going to affect how people deal with your, uh, characters. So they can't come in and lie to the local noble. They can't come in and, you know, do this. So like, it goes both ways. Deal with the implications of it. Look at the iteration of uh, of what's what's possible and what is actually going on in the world. Um, you know, if if you're a narrator well, and you live in a world where people use zone of truth a lot, well, you invest in finding a, a ring of uh, mind shielding. Mind shielding. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I would say. The, uh, there there is one thing I wanted to bring up because of, it's what caused me to write the blog post in the first place. Uh-huh. People aren't playing high-level games. Like, there are some people playing, obviously. All right. But the vast majority of people aren't. Is it just because they're scared it's too complex? Is it because of the fact that they don't publish many adventures for it. Like uh, the official adventures, the only one that's gone up to 20 was uh dungeon of the mad mage. Right. Uh, is which, it, which I continue to argue isn't an modern- actual adventure, but yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, the, <laughs> um, the, is it because modern life's complicated and getting together is hard, you know, kids, uh, jobs causes problems. I certainly run into that a lot um, you know I'd be interested to know because they they posted a stat D and d beyond posted a stat that people weren't making characters above thirteenth level really there's a small spike at 20th, and everything it between 13th and 20th it was so low that it couldn't be measured as a single percentage mm-hmm. um, and I'm curious why people aren't doing it
0: mm-hmm. Well, we certainly don't have a large enough sample size here to answer that question, but...
2: Uh, well, it, this,
1: historically, we've heard from Wizards and Paizo and other companies that mm-hmm. it, it doesn't sell well, right? There certainly is a market, but if you're going to make product A that is level 1 to 10 and product B that's a high-level product, uh, B is going to make less money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why uh, creates a niche, I think, for people like Ryan.
3: Yeah, it does. And it should be said when I complain about this, I'm doing so against my own self-interest because every time Watsi doesn't make something, I, I can swoop in and, and do it. But I, I do think a lot of... I, I did a poll today on, on my Twitter, which has 368 votes, which asked if you follow the, the leveling guidelines on DMG 263, which says you should level once each session for levels one through three, one level per two sessions at level four and one level per two to three sessions on five onward and according to the dmg this is appropriate for an xp track and a story benchmark track the overwhelming 63.3 percent said no so i think that's certainly a contributing factor if people are not following the design intentions of the fifth edition model that would certainly get you to higher levels faster especially if your groups fall apart I, I think that's a contributing factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I do I do think, especially with if people honestly think that high-level 5e is hard to run and hard to set up and has lots of problems, a, a very solid high-level adventure would provide a beautiful example of how to do it right. And I think wa- the people at WOTC are so amazingly talented that they're the ones best equipped to do it. And I, I just want one really good example and then I'll shut up forever about it about like a sort <laughs> of amazing high level adventure. I think people should be encouraged to start at level 10. I don't see much wrong with that. I see people say they don't want to do it. I've seen people say they don't want to play high level games, but very rarely are these people who tried it more than once. And if people gave those areas of the game the same level of effort that they gave their one through fives, I think much a lot more people would be would be playing it. I also think, and this is from my, my days as a semi-professional uh, World of Warcraft raider, that the existence of that content does more than simply be a product for people to buy. The, having a, a mountain with a beautiful peak is inspiring to all climbers, not just the ones who get to the top, and it impacts their experience. Right. The the knowledge that some people are there is is a hopeful and inspiring thing. And maybe that's a bit esoteric, but I I do like to when I played third edition, seeing adventures go that far inspired me to create my own stuff in that area. Right. Like it, it really was inspirational and drove me into that space. And, and I, I want to see more beautiful mountain peaks. And sure, I'll know that only 2 to 5% of people who play the adventure ever get there, but I think the fact that it exists is encouraging to, to a people as a whole, and maybe we'll never get data to support that, but that's sort of how I feel.
0: Teos, any last thoughts from you? I want to give everybody a chance for last thoughts, but we are well over an hour at this point, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that for, for DMs who haven't run high level and who are thinking about it, I would say, you know, start mid and work up if you're in a campaign, so that you can learn how these things work, and just keep talking to your players. The the key is really that conversation, so that you establish, you know, hey, I'm having a problem with this aspect of the build. What do you think? Right? Just create the talk your way through it, converse through those issues, uh, rather than than putting it on your shoulders that you must run some perfect campaign Mm -hmm. the other thing i'd say is that in general most dms are better off being simple rather than complex because complexity overwhelms us we're not good at running super tactical things so six monsters that have 20 abilities each is just too much just add damage to a simple monster (laughs) (laughs) nothing nothing threatens players like lots of damage Mm -hmm.
0: And, and the rules for the monsters are already built to be able to... Like, hit points are supposed to be a range. So just stack them at the top of the range if you need them to last a little longer, right? So you can tr- pull out some of their cool abilities that you never get time for and all that. Um... That's that's part of the tricks that uh, I got from Mike Shea, uh, who we mentioned earlier, uh, on Behind the DM screen when I was getting ready to run those demon lords. I'm like, you know, they're kind of walking over those early demon lords. What are we going to do? And he gave me some tips. And one of them was like, you know, hit points is a range. Just go higher on them, right? Um, and that fixed a lot of it. Uh, the other was given more actions. So they so I can pull off more of the cool... When you've got 20 different options and you want to play with them all, right? Give them more action so they can do that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I guess for my last word, I want to say that that I think from our conversation, I can sort of synthesize that, that we all sort of believe high-level play is more complex and it has challenges compared to low-level play. And I think... Because we've talked a lot about what those challenges are and how to overcome them, um, but I also think it's 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 worth trying, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fun level of play. It's a there's fun stories to tell there, um, and and players can have like it's fun to be fantasy superheroes, right? Like this is a a yeah. good a good game. Like it's a blast. Uh, and yeah. and if you're not good at it, then you know. Then you're not good at it, but just like everything, you know how you get better. You do it more, right? Uh, yeah. So, so I know we. Uh, I feel like we've we've made it sound really complicated, and we're going to scare people away from actually trying high level play. Don't like there are ways to overcome those challenges, and it's and it can be really fun. Um, so I think with that as my final word, uh, unless anybody's really burning to to jump in again, I'm going to go ahead and call this the end of the episode. Is that cool? Sure. <laughs> All right. I, I mean, I know we could probably continue talking for another hour or two, but, but uh, at some point, I do need to go to bed. So. <laughs> and make dinner. There you go. All right. So um, we're calling that the end of the episode. I want to say thanks to our guests. Uh, Teos, where can people go on the Internet if they want to find you? Uh,
1: thank you for having me. I can be found at AlphaStream or at AlphaStream.org, which is my blog.
0: There you go, right on. Uh, and I also want to thank Jeremiah. Where can people lo- go looking for you?
2: Uh, well, I have uh, jeremiahmccoy.com, uh, of course, for most of my blogging and stuff like that. And then, uh, of course, you can find me on Twitter as Tech Noir, And uh, I will often be rambling about D&D stuff there a lot, like a whole <laughs> lot.
0: Right. Uh, Ryan, what about you? Where should people go to look for you?
3: Uh, A couple places. You can find me on Twitter at 2C Gaming, which is, I'm the person who operates that Twitter account. So if I say something that upsets you, you know who's responsible and you can come (laughs) find me. Um, And then uh, you can live chat with me and other people who like our stuff on Discord or find our products at 2CGaming.com where we try and create 5th edition stuff that's a little bit off the beaten path. Um, And um, enjoy it along the way. We do Kickstarters. They're very fun.
0: All right, uh, and I also want to thank all of our listeners here on the stream. Those of you uh, who are following us live, uh, I tweeted it out, and that's where you can usually find the link. We are uh, at The Tome Show on Twitter, uh, and we I have been, been doing this, right? I've been for a month or so now, a little more than a month. I have been streaming uh, as many of the recordings of our podcast recordings as possible. Uh, and then eventually Sam or um, uh, Aaron, sorry, uh, will clean it up and make it sound pretty and put it out as the podcast, usually about a month or so later. So uh, I want to thank all of uh, the, those of you that joined us for the live stream. There was a great conversation going on. There's enough of a great conversation going on that I'm kind of like, why am I even on this episode? I should have had uh, Mike Shea and Merrick B and all these other people that are <laughs> engaging in this conversation. <laughs> like You guys should be doing this, not me, right? Uh, but here we are. So thanks to, to those guys uh, and gals who are on the chat and in following this on the stream uh, at twitch.tv slash tomeshow. Um, so look for us there. Uh, I also want to s- Thank our listeners who support the show by using our affiliate links at, to Amazon or DMs Guild that are available at thetomeshow.com. And those who support us directly at patreon.com slash show like Jill Sanders, Jeremiah McCoy, and Doug Palmer. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email show at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Like I said, the show is at the show uh, And that is episode 333 where we saved reality itself with our godlike powers in this episode of
3: I'm on the wall.